Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast, which is a product of the Bridge Jean Monnet Network. What follows is a recording from the 7th Bridge Network Conference, which took place on October 11th and 12th, hosted by the DCU Brexit Institute. This episode is a panel discussion featuring four PhD students, Teodora Miljokovic of Central European University, Hava Yesel of DCU, Theresia Morandel of ETH Zurich, and Giacomo Pignatiello of the University of Siena. And it's chaired by me, Ian Cooper. Welcome everyone to this uh, second panel of our PhD day on um, this meeting of the Bridge Network. Um, and I would echo uh, uh, the remarks that Federico made earlier and Ken, Mc Ken McDonough that it's uh, regrettable that we can't welcome you in person in Dublin um, due to obviously uh, force majeure. Uh, but um, it is, uh, we're extremely pleased to have you all joining us, at least virtually. Um, now this panel is made up of uh, PhD students that if I, if I may say, um, are at a, perhaps at a slightly earlier stage in their PhD process um, compared to the previous panel. Um, and uh, so they're not necessarily presenting fully uh, full-blown uh, papers, but they're presenting, uh, making presentations about research that they will be going to do, as well as research that is ongoing. Um, and so in, it's in the spirit of the Bridge Network that we welcome um, speakers at different uh, stages of their academic career, um, even including uh, early versus late stage PhD, um, PhD researchers. Uh, so we will go in the order of that, that um, is in the, in the uh, original uh, program. So we'll go first to Teodora Miljokovic, and then second will be Hava Yesel, third, Theresia Morandal, and fourth, Giacomo Pignatiello. Um, so just to introduce Teodora, uh, student at the Department of Legal Studies at Central European University. Um, and I'm quite intrigued by uh, her, her research program, offering a theoretical typology of techniques of interference with judicial appointments and dismissals. So it's about a theoretical ap approach to judicial independence. So take it away. Uh, and just to, oh, pardon me, one more, one more thing, just um, as before, 15 minutes each, um, and that will allow for uh, a good uh, 30 minutes of discussion at the end. Okay, take it away, Theodora. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I will share my screen now. Hopefully it will be successful like last time. Yes, I think that's good. So is it in the presentation uh, mode? Yes. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today and to present my work. Uh, I also enjoyed very much the first panel as it uh, resonated very well, I think, with my research and what I'm trying, at least what I'm trying to do in my research. So uh, I hope we will we will continue the discussion from the first panel, at least to some point um, after my presentation. Uh, so the title of my the tentative title of my PhD dissertation thesis will be Rule of Law and Limits to Interference with Judicial Independence. I'm pretty sure it will change over time, but for now, I think it captures very well what I'm uh, what I'm looking at uh, in my research. 
just a second. Okay. Um, as you can see, don't worry, I will not read whole slides of my presentation. I just put it here. So if somebody's interested, you can uh, you can read more. But let's say that my main um, my main aim of the thesis is through comparative analysis of the phenomena emerging around procedures of appointment and dismissal of judges in different social political contexts and under significantly diverse constitutional designs. Explore whether and to which extent is justifiable from the perspective of the rule of law principle for other branches of the government to interfere with independence of the judiciary. Now, what did I say here, actually? So my plan is to actually look to uh, at the appointment and dismissal of judges, uh, but a bit differently from what we have seen, uh, at least in the in most of the legal research on judicial uh, appointments and dismissals. So. Uh, I will focus on the phenomena emerging around the procedures of appointment and dismissal of judges. And by that, and I will explain this later uh, further, I mean specifically phenomena of court packing, court purging, and uh, judicial reforms in transitional regimes. Uh, and by that, I mean um, the societies in which, um, let's say, one um, regime completely captured the judiciary, and now we have to find out the, uh, which, which solutions will be feasible for the next uh, regime to, uh, to take in order to, to fix that. I think it will be uh, very useful, uh, uh, having in mind what's happening, at least now, in the EU. Um, the claim of this thesis will be, finally, hopefully, to, uh, that the standards set in order to protect judicial independence under the rule of law need to be defined with regard to the exigencies of particular socio-political contexts and constitutional architecture of each country they are applied to. In this sense, I think uh, my research resonates well with uh, what was previously said in the first panel that, um, and I will talk about this uh, further here, but Obviously, the, the EU rule of law crisis was the inspiration uh, for my research and what we have seen happening to the curtailment of judicial independence in the last uh, 10 years or so in Hungary and Poland. Uh, but I would say that we need to, to bring this to a um, uh, larger scale uh, in order to actually straighten our arguments for the rule of law and judicial independence. In that sense, um, as I say, uh, the techniques of illiberal regimes, which we identified over the last 10 years, um, are surely detrimental to the rule of law, but I would say they were not invented by illiberal leaders. Uh, they could be noted uh, even before, uh, like if we historically um, assess uh, comparatively uh, different countries, uh, not only EU, also outside EU, we can see that those techniques or very similar techniques were already identified. For example, I will just give a, a like short uh, example, like court packing. Uh, although now everybody in the EU is talking about the court packing, specifically of constitutional tribunals, as as something most detrimental, and it is most detrimental to the rule of law. Uh, I would dare to say that court packing was not invented by liberal readers. It was actually invented or let's say it was first shown in liberal democracies such as US, if we go back to Marbury versus Madison. So if we can see, and also if we mention today's debates in the US uh, about the court packing as being a good strategy for, for actually rebalancing uh, the US Supreme Court, we can actually start asking the questions, um, what is the nature of that interference? Is it necessarily bad or good for judicial uh, independence? And um, in that sense, the socio-political context come in handy uh, because I would say that 
if we have one country in which the court packing is considered, at least by theorists, to be a good idea, and in another country to be a violation of the rule of law, I think we need to go back to some deep researching uh, on that uh, interconnection between the rule of law and judicial independence. So in that sense, the importance of my research will be threefold. It will hopefully contribute to the better understanding of the theoretical interconnection of judicial independence and the rule of law. Uh, it will, as I say, offer clear theoretical distinction between different types of interference or techniques of interference with the judicial independence, as well as its assessment of its justification from the rule of law perspective. So first I will identify the interferences, then I will actually see how they coincide or not with the rule of law standards. Um, so you would ask why another typology? <laughs> That's a pretty old, um, let's say, methodology in legal um, studies. I would say it's practical for, uh, it can be used in practice for two reasons. First, as a guide, for either detecting the tendencies of curbing the judicial independence, like currently in the liberal regimes, or actually it could be used um, for, for countries which want to pursue uh, judicial reform and actually they want to be mindful of all the, let's say, um, bad things that could happen uh, within the process. So I think that it can be used either as a good or bad example um, uh, for, the, for the countries uh, undergoing judicial reforms. And thirdly, it will, through a comparative illustration of different case studies, draw attention to the need of taking into consideration, as I already said, sociopolitical context. Uh, I will not, this is, these are my jurisdictions. As you can see, I have a lot of them. Um, I will not uh, mention uh, every and each of one. If somebody is interested why I'm specifically taking uh, one of these, you, you can free, feel free to ask me. Uh, I would also um, want to mention that uh, the typology that I offered here in my jurisdictions will not be the typology I will use in my research. This is just a helping tool for me currently to sort out my jurisdictions. But in the end, I'm not planning to sort out my uh, jurisdictions by uh, dividing them into liberal democracies, illiberal democracies, or third-wave democracies, I think that's unuseful. I would actually sort them out exactly by techniques that were used to curb the judicial independence, uh, either in history or currently that we can notice. Um, just a second. Something is happening. Okay. Um, I will not go too deep into this uh, because uh, I will be short of time, but if you're interested, we can talk about it later, why the comparison of these jurisdictions, whether it's methodologically feasible, and what's the point of the comparison of all these jurisdictions on different continents and, and different sociopolitical contexts. And now I will uh, just like to elaborate a bit more on the central theoretical uh, issue of uh, my thesis, or at least the issue that my thesis is looking at, and that's the undisputable yet uneasy connection, as I would call it, between the rule of law and judicial independence. Um, as we probably all know, uh, all the legal theories, starting from Dicey uh, to over thin and thick theories, procedural rule of law theories, teleological rule of law theories, uh, I think all theories would agree that the rule of law and judicial independence are somehow intrinsically interconnected. However, uh, I would dare to say that that interconnection has not been yet um, explored deeply 
uh, not even on a theoretical, not to mention on a practical level, like actually assessing how a rule of law and judicial interference, judicial independence actually coincide in practice. So that would be the first uh, problem of my thesis to actually uh, detangle this, uh, this connection to see um, how they're connected. Uh, my questions are, is every form of interference with the judicial independence necessary a form of undermining the rule of law? As you can see, the obvious answer would be no. But <laughs> I don't think there are clear standards or clear limitation or clear guide on how to call one situation an interference with judicial independence, which can be um, defined as a violation of the rule of law and the other one which can be not. For example, if we take the recent um, jurisprudence of the ACJ in regard to Poland, which I uh, support and applaud, but uh, even if we if we deeply examine the the jurisprudence and the standards that the ACJ put forward, we cannot really see how they at least that's my opinion. We cannot really see how they came up with uh, with the conclusion that uh, that the Polish uh, interference with the judiciary uh, in several reforms uh, has been a violation of the judicial independence and hence. Uh, um, rule of law for the effective legal protection. Uh, I'm not saying it, it, it wasn't. I'm pretty sure that I, I'm uh, convinced that it is a violation of the rule of law. I just think we need to dig deeper and actually examine how to theoretically um, justify and, and explain that interference in order to have uh, stronger legal arguments against illiberal uh, regimes or any other regime which tends to curtail judicial independence. Um, I already mentioned this, so I will not uh, repeat myself. I would just like to uh, shortly mention that, uh, as I said, rule of law and judicial independence are uh, interconnected. And we could say that uh, by curtailing judicial independence, there is a violation of the rule of law. But there are situations, and scholars already identify them, in which actually the, uh, the rulers, illiberal, authoritarian, or even liberal, ones uh, can curtail judicial independence uh, through rule of law or actually um, inspired by rule of law. And my question is, uh, my example is, for example, Venezuela, which one is one of my jurisdictions in which uh, the, re the regime aimed at um, uh, completely transforming uh, the judiciary uh, due to uh, grandiose uh, corruption, but the problem that the way in which it was transformed and the purpose and the later how uh, the transformation took place was a serious violation of the rule of law. So, and judicial independence. So th that's that's somehow we are coming to a stalemate and the question is what to do in those situations and how to, how to actually explain those situations from a, uh, from a legal uh, theoretical um, standpoint. Uh, and I would say that those situations are the ones in uh, which uh, Professor Shiro, which is my mentor, called uh, situations of legal cheating, which can also identify currently in uh, Poland and, and Hungary, where um, judicial um, independence has been curtailed. But if we actually see, it's not so uh, straightforward uh, to prove uh, that, that it's a clear violation of the rule of law. We have to... Um, as I said, we have to dig deeper uh, in order to, to carve out uh, better legal arguments. Um, also, I would like to say that <laughs> my research will go beyond the, the jury independence in the sense that 
The previous research on judicial independence has largely focused on defining the concept uh, and defining essential elements, as well as the guarantees, which are entrenched in constitutions which aim to protect it. And I think that my research will go in the opposite way, in the sense that it will start from the interference itself and the techniques is explored in a comparative outlook. And in that way, it will look at the judicial uh, independence uh, through the ways it was interfered with uh, historically and uh, currently. Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> I have two minutes exactly to wrap up. Um, yes, as I already mentioned, court backing, purging. Also, I will have a look at, uh, obviously, politicization of judicial appointments and dismissal is, is pertinent uh, to my thesis, but I will also have a look at judicial councils, because as we have seen currently uh, in Hungary and Poland, they have also been uh, means to uh, through which the government uh, curtailed further judicial independence, which is the exactly opposite of the, of the nature for which judicial councils were established, uh, at least in theory, and in Italy where they, they were first established. So the concluding uh, remarks, as I said, the value of topology and legal research, I think it's still, um, it still can, we can still learn something from typology, from sorting out uh, this on a much larger scale, looking beyond the EU, uh, which is, I think, important in order to better protect rule of law within the EU. But also, <clears throat> I would like to, to say that we have to defend the best practices and, and the rule of law as a value uh, not only not only as a EU value, but also as a, as a value of national social political context, because that's the only way to, uh, as you mentioned in the first panel, to actually convince the citizens that that it matters. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Teodora. That was very very interesting, and I'm sure that it, that will generate a lot of interest um, amongst this audience. Um, so we will. Uh, immediately kind of uh, switch gears and move on to Hava Yezil from uh, uh, Dublin City University, uh, who will talk about the uh, Turkey-EU statement of 2016, which will also, I'm sure, generate a lot of interest with this audience. Thank you, Ian. Just let me share my screen. Can you see my screen now? Yes. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to my presentation. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for giving me a chance to my, present my research in the British Network. Uh, I'm Hawaii Esil, and from second year PhD student at Dublin City University under the supervision of uh, Professor Federico Fabrini. And this morning, I'm going to present my research project on the EU-Turkey statement in light of international refugee law and European human rights law. Uh, this research is uh, this presentation is structured as follows, starting with this uh, research background on Syrian refugee crisis and background of the EU-Turkey statement, and it's followed by the research question and aims, and lastly, uh, methodology and literature review and originality at the end. Let me start with the uh, background of my research. The Syrian civil war broke out in 2011 uh, as a result of Arab Spring. Because of this conflict, more than 5 million people have fled Syria and more than uh, over 13 million people are still in need, in need of humanitarian assistance. European st states started to affect uh, 
from this crisis in 2015, and by 2016, more than 5 million refugees have arrived, uh, arrived on European shores. On the other side, Turkey is hosting highest number of refugees compared to other neighboring countries. Most of them, most of the uh, Syrians in Turkey have turned their roads to Europe due to lack of health, uh, employment and education services. To stop this influx, EU made several deals with third countries like Turkey. The uh, EU-Turkey deal is the one of the most controversial and significant deal uh, concluded by the European Council and, and Turkey. What's the EU-Turkey statement? Uh, it has four main objectives as listed in this slide. But before turning them, let me tell that uh, in March 2016, EU entered with into a landmark agreement with the uh, with Turkey to aim to address the refugee crisis by ending irregular uh, routes from Turkey to Greek islands. The statement, of course, gives the rights and obligations to uh, Turkey, Greek, Greece, and of course the EU. In this way, Turkey requires to take all necessary measures to prevent new routes uh, for illegal migrants from Turkey to Greek islands and allow Greece uh, to return all new uh, irregular migrants to Turkey. In addition, for every returned Syrian, uh, another Syrian will be resettled from Turkey to EU, which is called one-to-one -one resettlement me mechanism, one of the uh, main objectives of the statement. And uh, second objective is the financial support, which is the statement's keys and co uh, most controversial objective is uh, financial support, which requires the 6 billion euro payment from uh, from EU to Turkey for Syrian refugees. And next one is the, the third one is the humanitarian assistance and facility for refugees in Turkey, which is called FRIT. EU established FRIT to mobilize the EU sources, which is uh, 6 billion euros to support refugees, refugees needs in Turkey. The last one is the uh, visa liberalization for Turkey. Turkish citizens is still in, in expectation, although it's promised under the deal. Uh, turning our attention now to the aims and objectives, uh, question of my research project. The aim of this project is analyze the EU, uh, analyze the agreement from perspective of EU law and human rights law. Through the examining the uh, compatibility of the statement with refugee law, in particular the duty of non-reformment. This research will evaluate the legality of the deal from the perspective of EU authority to conclude a deal with third countries like Turkey. Accordingly, this research seeks to address the main question, is the EU-Turkey deal compatible with the EU human rights law and international refugee law? To, uh, according, uh, to answer this main question, my research uh, considers three sub-related questions. First one is whether the European Council had the power to conclude the agreement. Uh, let me to elaborate this point further. Uh, once the refugee crisis turned into a major crisis for the EU since 2015, as I mentioned before, it brought the problems of common EU migration policy and different approaches of member states within the EU. And also investigating the crisis uh, also support recent findings show that European cooperation doesn't always amount to European integration. Uh, instead, it may occur outside the 
common EU structure and take more intergovernmental forms uh, so that new form of intergovernmentalism has gradually risen, which is also uh, refer, referred that rise of European Council's role, legislative role under the new intergovernmentalism. Therefore, the first sub-question examines that whether the European Council could legally enter the enter into such deal under the EU law from perspective of new intergovernmentalism. Next question, uh, I will focus on the whether the agreement is compatible with the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights and ECHR. EU Turkey statement has been challenged in in course both national and international levels. The, and the EU general course order are the first rulings on the statement which state that deal cannot be challenged uh, directly before the EU court since it's not uh, considered as an act of EU institution. It's just accepted uh, only as a political statement. These cases were based on the risk of violation of non-reformment, uh, the case of the uh, reformment of three asylum seekers who reached Greece via Turkey under the statement. Therefore, the, the position of the European Court of Justice may be contradicted with prior ECHR decision on the principle of non-reformment. Uh, so the second sub-question analyzes this compatibility to human rights and the EU law through the analyzing the, the case law, existing and growing case law from both grounds, international and national. And finally, my last question is whether the Turkey is safe con third country for uh, under the international refugee law. As the, as the country that hosts most Syrian refugees in the world, uh, Turkey introduced um, only temporary protection regime to address this massive influx of Syrians. Since Turkey has ratified the UN Refugee Convention with a geographical reservation, which means that uh, only people from Europe can be granted with refugee status in Turkey, uh, so that this temporary protection of uh, Syrian refugees makes them uh, increasingly vulnerable to insecurity, destitution, or, of course, uh, exploitation. So under these circumstances, this final question seeks to address how Turkey can play a significant role to protect Syrian refugees. Uh, and also, I would like to draw your attention to the recent events in Afghanistan. Since the Taliban took over the control, thousands of Afghans have scrambled to flee their country uh, to Turkey. So EU-Turkey cooperation in managing rising number of the Afghans will be pushed, uh, pushed back to work together in, to stop this influx as well. And this research will also cover the potentiality of the Afghan situation to trigger another deal between the EU and Turkey to stop infl Afghan influx. And uh, now the methodology. My pr primary research method is the legal methodology, which covers the analysis case, uh, analyzes the international and national treaties and cases from both uh, levels, international, European, and national courts. These are the uh, some of the the legislation and cases I listed on the slides. To I I aim to use my research. And since the statement has not only uh, legal aspect, interdisciplinary perspective, the uh, entire to show the political and legal sides in, at the same time in this research. As the Syrian refugee crisis stuck between law and politics, in, in other words, stuck between the EU border securization and human rights, uh, this research um, 
this research uh, interdisciplinary method move away the, this research from the solely looking at the legal instruments to be in order to build more conceptual analysis with the using the political science and legal uh, legal method as well. Additionally, to evaluate the uh, political aspects of the statement uh, within the EU structure, I use the new intergovernmentalism under political science, in particular to analyze the role of European Council uh, in negotiating the deal with Turkey. Lastly, uh, as I mentioned uh, in my previous slide, uh, Turkey is also challenging to take burden of a uh, new migrant wave from Afghanistan. This research will also uh, use the interdisciplinary method from both political and legal science and uh, in to address the potentiality of another deal to uh, stop the influx of Afghan refugees. So now uh, we come to the next point, literature. EU-Turkey statement has always a significant uh, potential to be an object of analysis in literature. Why some scholars have uh, analyzed, examined the Turkey's situation for Syrians and impacts of the statement like Roman and Pierce have examined the statement from Turkey's side. They discussed the Turkey's safe third country situation and Walter and Frank uh, also uh, analyzed the statement's role to reducing the number of crossing to Greek islands to, from Turkey. Uh, some others analyzed the statement within the EU system. For example, Peter and Fabrina have analyzed the rise of European Council, European Council's legislative role in the EU governance. Finally, I would like to address the originality of the project. And this research goes beyond the existing literature by providing a comprehensive analy legal analysis through the existing case law uh, from both levels, international and national. And uh, moreover, to evaluate the political aspects of the statement, I use the new intergovernmentalism under the political science. I, I believe that the new intergovernmentalism notes that significant ex extension of EU's policy agenda hasn't been accompanied by a similar transfer of a decision-making power at the uh, on the EU level. And, and one of the crucial factors behind the statement was the willingness of key uh, community officials put, to put their manpower at the cabinet level in order to analyze the rule of, role of the uh, European Council in decision-making and statements compatibility to human rights law, this research will undertake the first uh, comprehensive analyze uh, with interdisciplinary method and uh, also analyzing using the case law from both grants. Thank you very much for listening to me, and I'm looking forward to hear your question and comments. Thank you. Thank you, Ava, uh, for an excellent presentation. Very interesting, and it looks like an excellent uh, research project, um, and for staying within the time. Um, so we'll move uh, immediately on to Theresia Morandal. Um, now, Theresia, as I understand it, is uh, doing a PhD on the role of medium-sized cities in urban planning and multi-level governance. Uh, but that and that's but that is not what uh, she's going to be presenting on today. She'll be presenting on previous research from her time at Bolzano on the phenomenon of urbanization in constitutional law. I hope I'm correct in uh, in saying that. So I'll pass the floor to Theresia Morandel from the University of Bolzano. Thanks a lot, Ian. And yeah, sorry, it's like sort of complicated, but that was right. <laughs> I'm just quickly trying to share the screen. Um, 
and hopefully now you can see it full size. Okay, great. So I'm very happy to be present today and to have the possibility to talk about uh, a research I recently conducted at the Free University of Bolzano under the supervision of uh, Professor Stefano Baroncelli. So it's actually kind of a background project. It's elaborating the legal um, context for my current PhD project in the field of ur urban governance, which I have just started a couple of weeks ago at ETH in Zurich. So um, we're... We're moving into the topic of differentiation in comparative constitutional law. And more precisely, we're going to study if and how our constitutions adapt to the global phenomenon of urbanization. And this is quite an important topic to be addressed in today's Europe because uh, urbanization is a global multifaceted phenomenon uh, and it has heavy implications on local governance in Europe and abroad. And it calls for differentiated governance approaches and an adequate reflection in constitutional law. And also my research revealed that in Europe, um, there's still a long way to go to adapt to this phenomenon of urbanization in legal practice and as well as in legal research. So let me briefly introduce you to the background of urbanization. The 21st century has been up the century of the city because today more than half of the world's population lives in urban areas. And it's expected that by 2050, um, urban dwellers will account for two thirds of the total global population. At the same time, we naturally record our continuous decline in the share of rural dwellers, as you can see um, on the slide. And this is mainly due to cities increasingly incorporating formerly rural areas, but it's also due to migration, both national and international, as well as due to a surplus of birth over death rates um, in urban areas. In the past, Europe, North America and Oceania have been the world regions with the highest share of urban dwellers but they are starting to be surpassed by Africa, Asia and Latin America, which are currently urbanizing at a much faster pace. Urbanization changes the environment in which local governments are embedded, and it has um, heavy implications on the governance of both larger and smaller cities, as well as on the governance of rural areas. So in large metropolises, um, they grow in economic importance, both nationally and, and internationally, but they also face a series of strains which are related to pollution, to urban poverty, to pressures on infrastructures, because they need to serve a high and ever-increasing number of people. The depopulation of rural areas, on the other hand, makes it increasingly difficult for rural local governments to finance and provide high-quality services to their population. And there are financial pressures in rural contexts, and usually we record a weaker economic performance in smaller towns and rural areas. So against this background, was uh, we are going to examine not only if constitutions adapt to urbanization as a general phenomenon, but we are more precisely going to ask whether we can identify differentiated constitutional treatment of local government. So along the urban-rural dimension that would account for the varying local governance context in both larger cities, smaller cities, and also rural areas. And as I briefly mentioned before, we're talking about a topic which is of special relevance to European governance, because the literature reveals that there are a couple of shortcomings in the field. So there has recently been a broad comparative study on the role of big cities in constitutional law, which was conducted by Ren Herschel. And he comes to the conclusion that overall global North countries of Europe, North America and Oceania in, those constitu in their constitutions will largely have constitutional silence on the topic of urbanization. While many global South constitutions actually display a more innovative approach towards urban governance. But the literature tells us so far little about medium-sized cities, smaller cities, rural areas, um, and their role in constitutional law. And therefore, uh, I set out to analyze uh, around 160 national written constitutions across all world regions, actually, in order to find out 
if and how they differentiate between urban and rural areas, and generally what kind of approaches they adopt to the phenomenon of urbanization. So for my remaining time, I'm going to uh, talk you through a number of such approaches which I identified by means of very specific examples in order to make it a little more tangible. And let's start with the case uh, of India, which is uh, actually the most comprehensive uh, case of um, how a constitution might differentiate. So one approach um, is to differentiate between rural types of local governments and urban ones. And in the case of India, we are talking here about rural panchayats and urban municipalities. So by differentiating constitutions, acknowledge that there are various kinds of local uh, contexts and they potentially are also allowed to create asymmetric differentiated governance systems, specifically for urban and rural settings. And this is approach I actually um, detected for around a fifth of the analyzed charters. So it's quite common. Secondly, the Indian constitution also established a separate catalogs of local powers, specifically for rural panchayats or for urban municipalities. Uh, in rural settings, we find, for example, powers which are related to agriculture, to animal husbandry, or to small-scale industry, while uh, urban local powers typically include urban planning, slum improvement, or urban poverty alleviation. And such an entrenchment of urban and rural-specific local powers offers uh, local authorities the instruments to potentially address the differing governance needs in urban and rural settings. Also, in a number of African constitutions, we find tendencies towards differentiation. So, for example, we have the case of Zimbabwe, where we find the aforementioned distinction between urban and rural types of local government. But we also find the possibility to aggregate several municipalities in a second tier super municipal districts. And this approach allows small rural local governments to share strained resources by jointly providing services to larger areas. But it also uh, allows in metropolitan areas to serve entire urban functional areas, which typically sprawl across the, the administrative borders of a, uh, of a single core city to all the uh, joining uh, or adjoined municipalities. So in both cases, we aim at making use of economies of scale, we aim to avoid duplications in services, and we strive towards making efficient use of resources. We generally re register uh, growing economic inequalities between large metropolises and smaller cities, as well as rural territories across the globe. But in several African constitutions, we find commitments that aim at countering such uneven de development of territories. So for instance, um, some African constitutions establish fiscal equalization mechanisms or specific development transfers in order to compensate for urban-rural financial differences, or some constitutions entrench their commitment to the balanced development of all territories, demanded different levels of government from the local up to the national level to jointly elaborate integrated development policies. Also, a number of Latin American constitutions stand out in terms of committing to balancing urban and rural interests. So we have the Bolivian constitution, which provides for the involvement of rural indigenous authorities as an additional type of local government. And we find several other constitutions which introduce urban rural cooperation bodies or quotas for the special representation in municipal councils of special groups of people, such for example, nomads or farmers. And such a balancing of urban and rural interests can be interpreted as a means to prevent territorial conflict, also to avoid political discontent among rural dwellers, which, um, who in the center of the city might actually feel left behind big uh, and rising metropolitan areas. In the Ecuadorian case, we find a special sensitivity to varying geographical contexts with the possibility to establish special regimes, metropolitan areas, but also in rural indigenous territories, as well as in the Amazonas region. And we also have several constitutions um, which establish the possibility to have special regimes for island areas or for mountain territories. So generally for differing um, geographical contexts. 
Some constitutions also pay attention to the great differences in local government size. So the Brazilian constitution provides a very broad category system, which ranges from very small, rather small towns up to very big cities of around 8 million people and above that links the number and compensation of local councillors uh, to local government size. And let's finally look also at the European case. So European constitutions stand out specifically for entrenching the rights in municipal cooperation, which is to say that they allow local governments to, co to cooperate or to form associations on matters of common interests, or they allow them to establish intermunicipal umbrella entities for the joint management of local tasks. They thereby once more allow to, um, to share resources and to coordinate across municipal borders in rural population contexts, but also in sprawling metropolitan areas. Beyond that, European constitutions are actually not as silent on the topic of urbanization as we might have initially suspected. Some European constitutions also differentiate between urban and rural types of local governments, as we have seen is the case in India. So this applies, for example, to several of the younger Eastern European constitutions. Um, and a number of European constitutions also um, confer large cities the status of regional, um, subnational level of government or of intermediate provincial level, such as we find, for example, in the case of Italy with the metropolitan cities as, um, at provincial level. And this approach um, provides cities with enhanced autonomy, powers and resources in comparison to basic level local governments. So we actually do find some levels of asymmetry in European charters, but to a very low extent, So, which is to say that in a very small number of constitutions. And to sum up, um, we have overall seen that some constitutions do differentiate or they start to adapt to urbanization, but this share of more innovative constitutions is quite low across world regions. So we are talking about 10 to 20% of all the analyzed charters, depending on the typology we are looking at. And we also have to say that while generally the shares are low, it really depends um, on the world region. So many of the novel approaches towards urbanization are to be found in African, Latin American or Asian constitutions with only a few European exceptions. And I have entirely uh, ignored North American Australia, not out of lack of interest, but generally because there's nothing on the topic to be detected there, basically. So an explanation uh, for these geographical differences might be found in the pattern of the urbanization wave itself. As I have briefly mentioned at the beginning, um, the current wave of urbanization is manifesting at a much higher pace, precisely in Africa, Latin America uh, and Asia, while Europe and North America have already experienced our first urbanization wave in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. And back then, um, constitutions were not yet, yet as big a topic as, we, uh, as today, we might say. So um, currently, like looking at the ongoing urbanization trend, um, we also might um, deduce that in global South context, it might, it might actually be out of mere necessity to, um, to attribute a greater attention to providing constitutional solutions to the urbanization trend. <coughs> Sorry. Also, many of the global South constitutions are younger than global North ones. So they're also, they tend to be a little longer and more detailed and also easier to amend, which might be another explanation for um, more, higher responsiveness to current macro trends such as urbanization. But whatever the reason, uh, as an implication for European urban and rural local governance, we can say that we still need to adjust constitutional frameworks to this new urbanized reality. And while we could identify some tentative evidence for differentiation, it's imperative to better study the topic and to learn from the innovative approaches identified um, in other world regions. So this is necessary to better equip local governments in Europe and beyond with the means to address urbanization in the future. 
And uh, with that, I conclude. And I was hope I was able to give you a rough overview of it. It's emerging topic in constitutional law. And I'll be happy to answer any follow-up questions and comments afterwards. Even I have been very broad and um, just talked about some examples, not about um, uh, methodology or anything. But if, like, if you're interested, we can talk about that afterwards. Thanks a lot. And back to you, Ian. Thank you very much, Therese. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating, uh, fascinating research project. Um, I should uh, apologize for um, making a mistake with your uh, current institutional affiliation, which is ETH Zurich, uh, not Bolzano. Uh, so sorry about that. Um, now we'll turn immediately to our uh, final speaker on this panel, uh, who is uh, Giacomo Pignatiello. Um, who is in the enviable position of being at the University of Siena. Um, and uh, he's going to be talking about the right to a fair, fair trial and the sanctioning procedures before independent authorities in the European financial markets. Welcome, Giacomo. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, excellent pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, thank you very much also. I'm, I'm really honored to be here today to such a prestigious conference. And I'm also very grateful both to Professor Federico Fabrini and Professor Helle Krunke for their invitation. Uh, thanks also to the other panelists uh, for their very inspiring presentations. So today I will speak about the right to a fair trial and the sanctioning procedures before independent authorities in the European financial markets. So as cyclically proved by history, Collapse of financial markets, as well as regulatory failure, inevitably end up having repercussions of people on people's life, and the negative effects of economic crisis do not affect only intermediaries and investors. They damage all society, and particularly the weakest sectors of it. Financial crunches can destabilize even consolidated democracy, democracies, as it was clear in Southern Europe in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. The rise of populisms and nationalisms, which threat the stability of the European Union, is a clear example of the consequences that bad regulatory and policy approaches to crisis can entail. On the one hand, the European Union and the member states work hard to reform the banking system that led to the creation of the single supervisory mechanism. On the other hand, financial markets did not lead to the creation of uh, to the um, did not face substantial changes. The adoption of EU acts such as the MAD the second and the MAR left unresolved major problems regarding financial markets in the European legal space. Today, the latter appear fragmented, and supervisory authorities struggle to cooperate. In this regard. Strengthening the sanctioning systems appears to be a crucial factor for the assurance of the integrity and the transparency of financial markets to develop thanks to the increase of investors' trust, a flourishing economy. This is particularly true now that we are still experiencing the depressing effects on economy caused by the pandemic emergency. At the same time, the influence exerted by the European Court of Human Rights and its case law on sanctions deemed criminal in essence, and this is uh, the famous decision in Engels, uh, which brought to the definition of the Engels criteria recently um, 
called in the Grand Stevens and Others versus Italy decision, required democratic systems to safeguard the right to a fair trial, enshrined in Article 6 of the European Convention of Human Rights and also in Article 47 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, and particularly both the independency of adjudicators and the right to remain silent before independent authorities that can issue to citizens very afflicting penalties. Therefore, it must be assessed whether the right to a fair trial is safeguarded not only in criminal or civil trials, but also in administrative procedures before authorities. As for the architecture of the legal order, it must be noted that the 21st century marked the rise of a multi-level system of supervisory agencies and courts aimed at safeguarding people's fundamental rights. As for courts, many different jurisdictions overlap each other, such as the European Court of Human Rights, the Court of Justice of the European Union, and national courts. A similar multi-layered structure applies to agencies which are headed in Europe by the ESMA. However, in the financial sector, hierarchical structure, like the one existing in the banking field, is not possible, being national authorities able to better monitor offenses occurring in their jurisdiction according to domestic laws. The network model applies to agencies supervising financial markets. On this regard, the Italian system uh, shows several problems in reconciling effective administrative sanctioning procedures with the safeguard of people's fundamentals right, and particularly the right to a fair trial. The Italian Independent Authority for the Supervision of Financial Markets, La Commissione Nazionale per la Società e la Borsa, CONSOB, faces severe criticism and it might be sanctioned by the European Court of Human Rights. As for the independency of the sanctioning authority in financial markets, among the many tasks with which is entrusted, there is still no substantial distinction between the office entitled to lead investigations and collect evidence and the one that issues penalties. In addition, individuals suspected of having committed offenses related to financial markets, if heard by the authority, cannot claim the right to remain silent without the risk of being prosecuted for obstructions to the supervisory activities. If not collaborating with the authority that might send to criminal prosecutor information acquired during the hearing, citizens can be considered non-compliant with the duty to cooperate with the administration. This violates the fundamental principle of non-self-incrimination. In a comparative perspective, the French legal system deserves attention. Impelled by decisions of the Conseil d'État, in the last decade, the French legislator changed the role played by the national authority aimed at the supervision of financial market, l'Autorité des Marchés Financiers, la AMF, to make the sanctioning system more consistent with the right to a fair trial, both in relation to the independence of the regulator, which issues sanctions, and the right of citizens to remain silent. Furthermore, the UK deserves equal consideration. Belonging to a different legal family, it represents an important model of reference which can offer interesting perspectives over the approach adopted by the National Regulatory Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority, in relation to the procedures adopted for issuing sanctions. 
The capacity of the UK system to adapt easily to the new trends taking place in financial markets, and at the same time, its consistency with fundamental rights, such as the right to a fair trial, make it a case worthy of a more in-depth analysis. The European Union as a supranational legal system must be taken into consideration as well, being the ESMA and the EU agency called to coordinating on a supranational level, all the national supervisory authorities particularly interesting. I claim that the circulation and the cross-fertilization of models in the European legal space is possible and fruitful to reinforce the existing sanctioning systems in the regulation of financial markets. The goal is to design um, an institutional architecture of administrative sanctioning procedures before the Italian concept that is both efficient and respectful of people's fundamental rights. More concretely, one might wonder if in the sanctioning procedures before the independent authorities for the regulation of financial markets, the right to a fair trial, both from the perspective of the, of the independency of the adjudicator and the right to remain silent is respected. Similarly, are there procedural models for the enforcement of financial regulation that can be exported in Italy? What tools could the European Union and the member states adopt to create effective deterrent systems complement with the right to a fair trial? The aim of the question is to cover a remarkable gap in literature. Since no comparative analysis has been carried out about the safeguard of the right to a fair trial in the quasi-judicial procedures conducted before the independent authorities. The research calls for a methodological pluralist uh, approach according to the most advanced technique elaborated by both legal and social sciences. The contextualized functionalist method is deemed particularly useful for this purpose. It presents the advantages of both the traditional functionalist approach and the slow and diligent familiarization with the foreign legal systems and their environment to avoid the more typical problems and rejection and restrictions of comparative law. On the one hand, the functionalist approach is particularly useful to elaborate policies and models of regulation, thanks to the analysis and the selections of the best practices. On the other, the contextualist method examines the different legal cultures present in the European legal space thereby avoiding possible rejections of the regulation suggested. An in-depth study of the international, supranational, and domestic legal frameworks is worthy of being carried out. In addition to the textual analysis, an empirical part shall be dedicated to the reconstruction of the main case law issued by the courts in the interpretation of the norms involved. For example, the European Court of Human Rights, the Court of Justice of the European Union, constitutional courts, administrative and criminal courts. So several hypotheses might be assessed as possible solutions. A, assure the full jurisdictions, jurisdiction already during the administrative procedures before the independent authorities. B, create a differentiated system of actions according to the sever several degrees of the offenses involved, like in the UK system. So minor offenses might be sanctioned adopting civil penalties and settlements, while major offenses might be directly brought before the judiciary. And C, reconfigure the design of the authority's internal architecture to safeguard the independency of the adjudicator 
while also assuring the right to keep silent for the people involved in the investigative procedure, like in the French model. So here was my presentation. Thank you very much for your attention and the time. And I'm really willing to hear for your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Giacomo. So we've had, we've heard from four excellent speakers. Um, and uh, just to contextualize a little bit, um, the, 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 it was a diversity of subject matter uh, covered, but um, all of them are very much within the remit of the Bridge Network's uh, uh, research program. Because if you don't, for those who don't know about it, the Bridge Network uh, was put together to look at how, um, how the European Union, different member states within the European Union have responded to these four crises, the European, uh, the Euro crisis, migration, rule of law, and uh, Brexit. And so out of those four crises, we've had three papers that have covered at least three of those. And then another aspect of the, uh, of the bridge network is to look at differentiated governance. And so we've had a paper about differentiated governance specifically with respect to urbanization. Um, so it's a, a diverse uh, field of papers, but uh, with some very, very interesting um, uh, cross currents between them. And, uh, and I expect that uh, there will be uh, a lot of interest from the audience in uh, these different papers. Now, I'm looking at my uh, chat uh, function. I'm also looking for if anybody has, wants to raise their hand um, in order to uh, ask a question. I'll pause. Ah, Renata, do you want to? Uh, okay, I'm unmuting you, and there you are. Great to see you, Renata Uitz, uh, one of our, uh, another one of our uh, uh, the lead project leaders on the uh, bridge program. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, Ian, and 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 thank you for the for the panel. It was it was absolute fun to fun to listen to you. I I I have two sets of of uh, specific. Uh, questions and I and I think I would like to to start with the ones to to Theresia because you you said that in that the Latin American constitutions which have these provisions you are interested in are are younger than the European ones. I mean, if you of course look at their trajectories, it's not necessarily true. So there is plenty of constitutional evolution and thinking on how to express belonging to, to the political community. So um, I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about the dynamics of, of how these provisions get to get to be included about city and and and, and city dwellers into, into the constitutions. And a related question is the in, in, in the Americas. And the related question is the the difference it makes that within the EU, you can have networks of cities and cities can directly access certain, certain benefits without the mediation of their national governments. And, and I'm wondering whether there are comparisons between, between narratives of liberation and narratives of, of inclusion in larger political communities. Uh, my, my other question actually goes, goes to Theodora and, and it would probe her on, on comparing the approach the ECHR has taken uh, in Xeroflor and Company and uh, the, the recent Jurek judgment concerning uh, 
risks to judicial independence when it when it comes to to appointment. So whether you see a difference, whether whether there is there are distinct trajectories behind the the convergence which which the CGEU is trying to project. Thank you. Um, well, I don't see any other hands just at the moment. And if you have any, if you have a question, please do raise your hand, or you can also type it into the chat function. But um, since I don't see any other questions at the moment, I'll just go straight to uh, Theresia and then Theodora to answer those questions from Renata. Mm, so thank you very much for the questions. And I, I hope I will be able to live up to answer to them because, um, well, let's go start with the second one. So um, actually, like several of the constitutions also include um, the right for local governments to directly engage um, in international um, local government associations and even like if, of course like if it's not included in the constitution it's not said that like mm, local governments cannot in fact engage in such networks and i think the mm, the, the um, beneficial part of um, being a member in such networks is like of course to share experiences with other um with other local governments which might find themselves in the same situation uh, also to directly network, um, share practices, and maybe also uh, share best practices, and maybe also um, <clears throat> increase the own voice via v national governments, also to increase the pressure, maybe sometimes to um, create more favorable legal frameworks, because there's, there are in fact many, and this especially goes on part of bigger cities, which call for asymmetric treatment for them to um, get more economic power, more responsibilities in order to face, uh, also to um, actually tackle the manifold um, challenges with, which come along with urbanization. Um, so I've been talking about like big metropolitan cities spreading across the municipal borders of like single um, cities. And like we have really big um, territories which are covered and entirely interconnected urban, um, densely populated urban areas. So um, Especially also there are many city networks also on an international scale. And I think like one of the benefits also there is um, to increase their voice and to um, also to exert pressures, but then yeah, also to network and exchange experiences. And um, as comes to the part of Latin America, I have to admit that um, I'm not an expert in the field of constitutional law. And especially I, I, um, I analyzed the context of the, as a, the the content of the constitution like of the written big c constitutions and i didn't look at how um provisions may might be uh, come to be included in constitutions um what but from like the review of the literature i can say is that um of course many of the constitutions like many european constitutions or um yeah many european constitutions have been amended recently so you could also say like they are young and they could actually include provisions on local uh, on uh, urbanization or urban rural differing governance requirements. Um, actually, the trend for very young constitutions um, incorporating, especially um, attempts uh, or commitments towards solidarity, towards balanced territorial uh, development, uh, go back to the African continent with constitutions which were adopted after two thousand and one, and um, body was also several Latin American constitutions. Um, so it's maybe like, let's say that uh, the age itself is like one of different factors, like many different factors. And I think it's more like also a matter of having more flexible constitutions, which are maybe more easier, like easier to amend 
um, or the also a balancing in between how detailed or um, abstract one wants to have the constitutions. So necessarily, it's not necessarily also only the age which um, has an impact on which topics get to include it in the constitution or not. Um, Theodora, do you want to answer uh, your question? <laughs> yes, sure. So if I understood correctly, Professor Ritz, you, you are asking me to if, if I see any differences in the approach uh, of the ACJ and the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, when, okay, great. Yes, of course, I see. Um, I see great uh, differences. Uh, although ACJ, when they first construed their uh, standards, starting from the Portuguese case, uh, judges case, uh, we could see uh, the evident um, influence of the European Court of Human Rights. I think that the recent judgment, the, if I pronounce it correctly, Ratskovic versus Poland, on the European Court of Human Rights actually goes further uh, than the ACJ's jurisprudence uh, on, on Polish situation because the court actually established that there is a violation of the domestic procedure uh, when it came to the appointment of the disciplinary chamber um, uh, of the Polish Supreme Court. So in that sense, uh, I think that the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights under Article 6 could actually be more, um, not elaborate, but uh, since, since the European Court itself has, a, I would say, um, a bit a broader jurisdiction than the ACJ, because the ACJ primarily looks at the violation of the EU law, uh, here, the European Court actually can could uh, delve into more into elaboration of the of the violation of the domestic law. I think that the, the these two approaches are distinct. Um, unfortunately, I cannot tell you more about it because I'm still in the process of research. But definitely, um, one chapter of my thesis will be dedicated to uh, to these two approaches, um, which are uh, which are assessing the the crisis of courts um, in the liberal regimes of the EU nowadays. But yes, I don't think they are same. Um, uh, as I said, I think that the European Court of Human Rights went a bit deeper into analysis. That's just my opinion, uh, because it actually assessed the, the internal, um, internal legal situation more um, deeply than the ACJ. Thank you, Teodora. Um, now, we also have a question from Adrian Rubio. Thank you very much indeed. I just wanted first of all to congratulate the four of you because I think your projects are very insightful and actually really needed for the current state of the literature. So congratulations, first of all. My question goes to Mr. Giorgini Pignatiello and I was wondering what informed your case selection and in particular, if you're talking about European financial markets, what was the reason to pay attention to the UK. And I'm asking this because if you do that, even though the financial markets are not really, it's not just the same financial market. I, I was just wondering if you're taking a functionalist approach insofar as you think controlling those independent authorities could be something that could um, be harmonized or cross-fertilized across, um, across countries, across jurisdictions, just because the function itself is similar or equivalent. And so what lessons can you are you expecting to learn from the UK model to import a little bit here in Italy? Thank you. Thank, thank you, Adrian, for that question. Uh, Giacomo. Thank you very much, Mr. Rubio, for your very interesting question. So um, 
I think when it, 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 it comes to the case selection, case selection is always a crucial moment in uh, a dissertation uh, in comparative law. So I decided to uh, analyze also the UK because um, I'm, I'm using uh, in my research a notion of uh, European legal space that is broader than just um, the European Union. And this is needed because, of course, today's when we deal with financial markets, we are from one side, the United States, and from the other side, uh, China, that are rising uh, states um, that have big power on, in financial markets. And so I think it, it's interesting to analyze the European context in a broader way than just the European Union. And to do this, I'm also referring to the notion of Jus Publicum Europeum that both uh, Professor von Bogdandi and Professor Hinghofer uh, Salkai um, recently uh, dealt with. So the idea is that uh, the uh, European legal space um, can be uh, somehow harmonized, that um, this is a very useful, uh, that comparison has a lot to play in this uh, in this regard, and uh, yes, of course, there are France and Italy that are two similar cases, but also as very well uh, uh, taught by uh, Professor Hirschel in his comparative matters. It, I think it might be also useful to compare uh, this uh, the Italian legal system with a very different case, uh, such as uh, the UK. This is why I chose these three different legal systems. And of course, they are bo both France and uh, the UK are very famous models of reference. They're really dynamic. So I think there's a lot to learn. Thank you very much. Thank you, Giacomo. I guess, Theodora, um, quick question for the Theodora. And this is someone, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I just, I'm somewhat familiar with the whole rule of law uh, debates. I guess my question would be, um, does the ECJ, actually have a does it have a, a working theory of judicial interference um, or is that something that it is kind of developing on the fly and it's the and 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 what I get from your work is that um, it's very much contextual you know because they're because every because every country has different kind of system of judicial appointments um, so that would be my question to you. My question to uh, to Theresia is kind of a much broader question. I'm um, I'm coming at it coming at this question looking at it like a Canadian, um, and where I come from uh, is a federal system, and municipalities have practically zero um, constitutional recognition. Um, they are creatures of the provinces. And the provinces, um, and they they kind of they exist by kind of uh, by the blessing according to the blessing of the provinces, and then there is a famous um, famous uh, incident or a, a, a controversy a few years ago because in Toronto, Toronto is the biggest city in Canada, it's more four or five million people. Um, and the province just basically decided to redraw the lines of uh, of that of the largest city in the country, and the and the city was basically powerless to stop it. Um, and so, I guess 
I'm wondering whether federalism is fit for purpose. Uh, you know, it might have been fit for purpose in the 18th or 19th century, but whether, you know, with the new reality of urbanization, whether it's at all fit for purpose in the 21st century. Um, I will. I'll stop there uh, and uh, leave those two questions um, uh, for the moment, and keeping an eye out for um, hands being raised. So, I sh should I go first or? Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you for your question. Um, yes, it's very interesting that the, I mean, I think that all lawyers could agree that the, that the jurisprudence of the ACJ and judicial independence is, is well-intentioned, but it is a bit um, artificially put in the sense that it wasn't there from the very beginnings. For, for example, the, the ACJ didn't really have this uh, line of reasoning, um, for example, in Commission versus Poland, uh, when the when the situation was also that the that the judges' uh, independence was jeopardized and they looked at it from a completely other uh, angle, which doesn't have to do uh, with uh, jurisprudence, current jurisprudence, and judicial independence. Uh, in that sense, uh, if you ask me whether they have the standards for interference, uh, I would not say so. They have tests for judicial independence, which resonates very well with the test of the European Court of Human Rights under Article 6 of the Convention. Um, but the problem with the, the ACJ is that uh, usually, I don't know, like when you read the ACJ decision, they're not very um, deep and elaborated. They are very concise. That's the style of the ACJ. So we cannot really extract much from uh, from uh, their decisions, but we can all, but we can look at the reasoning of the Advocate General. There is actually there actually we can we can see uh, what's going on and what's the what the the reasoning of the ACJ will be. Uh, so in that sense, uh, uh, as you already mentioned, very interesting that different countries of the EU have different uh, appointment procedures. Uh, that's true, and that's actually something that we might consider as dangerous. And actually, liberal re leaders might be right there when they say that. I mean, I'm just saying might be right uh, when they say that uh, there might be a question of double standards within the EU when it comes to the jurisprudence of judicial independence applied by the ACJ. Because recently there was a there was also a crisis of the judiciary in Spain. Uh, last year, and there was a question whether it would uh, come to ACJ and how the jurisprudence would be applied. So it, it didn't. But the the question is really like uh, whether it's good to to somehow frame the jurisprudence for to, in order to tackle a particular problem in the EU now, uh, and how it will uh, whether it will backfire later. But in my opinion, I, I think that shouldn't be really a concern right now. So I think that the ACJ did what it had to do. Um, I mean, I support at least that approach. So, so in that sense, um, I, I think there will be more cases because the, the tests and the jurisprudence is very recent. So we don't um, know much beyond the Polish, basically, uh, situation when it comes to ACJ's jurisprudence on judicial independence, where they actually found the, the violation of the EU law. Thank you. Thank you, Theodora. Uh, Theresia? Thank you very much for the question. It's like actually a very interesting question and one of like the first, um, also like one of the questions which bothered also myself and I worked a lot um, on, lit on federalism literature also when write, like when working on a research project. And um, 
actually i have no uh univocal answer like to your question because it depends it really depends because we have um it really depends on the kind of federal system and on the vision of the federal system we want to have because actually in my research um I extract like for my analysis. I extract, extracted all the constitutions which which do have provisions on municipal government. So it amounts to 160 in total. And neither the U.S. nor the Canada nor the Canadian nor the Australian constitutions were included in a sample because in their national federal constitutions they do not talk about local government at all, and then naturally, of course, not about cities. And there's in fact a lot of literature which also says. Um, well, um, that yeah, the cities are like the or the local governments, and as an extension, also cities are the creatures of the provinces. And of course, like you can take, uh, you can change boundaries because then they have like yeah, they don't have the powers. Like their powers are not protected, right? But it's um, this it really is the case for this older dualistic understanding of federalism, where we have the theory that federalism depend uh, is really made up of the federal and the subnational level of government um, and no other levels in between or like beneath or uh, below. And, and here also we can um, maybe like as an explanation for this, um, for sticking to this older model in some countries is also the fear by the subnational levels of government of so-called hourglass federalism which is the fear if you have a third level of government, which are the local governments, if you empower them, um, give them more, 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 more resources, more responsibilities, as say, then you have to relocate the powers from probably the subnational level of government. So here, like in many systems, we have quite a lot of uh, resistance to this mechanism. But on the other hand, we also have some um, a federal system, such as, for example, Germany or Russia, where big cities are in fact... Um, recognize the status of, uh, um, of, a of a subnational level of government. So we have, for example, the city-state of um, Bremen, Hamburg, and Berlin, or like in Austria, we have Vienna as a city-state. And, um, and then there's like some newer, younger constitutions, like for example, the Brazilian one, the Indian one, and the um, South African one, which recognize local government as a third level of um, government in within the federal structure of the state. So we no longer have just two levels, but also a third one. So it really depends on the vision of federalism you have, and maybe also on the political dynamics, the undercurrents, um, which also lead to the, the diff, um, to the design of the federal system. And maybe like just, I don't want to monopolize all the time, but like just for South Africa, we can also see actually that the provinces are really um, lost power or not lost power, but there we have hourglass federalism. So that like the, we have a strong local level, a strong federal level, level, but a relatively weaker subnational provincial level. Thanks. That's very interesting. Um, thank you for that answer and indulging me in that very long <laughs> um, kind of speculative question. Um, I'm still looking around the room for hands. Um, if I don't see one, I do have a question for Hava, uh, if you don't mind. Um, so I'm interested in kind of the intergovernmentalist aspect of this, uh, of this EU-Turkey deal and the kind of also the legal status or lack thereof of the, of the EU-Turkey statement. Um, the, I guess one, one question I would have is that how stable is it? Because if you recall uh, last year, um, right around the time of the start of the pandemic, Turkey suddenly opened the border. 
Um, and uh, and of course now they realize that that's a tool that they have. They can just they can it's like a tap that they can turn it on and off. And now you can kind of see Belarus following the same playbook actually uh, in relation to uh, the Baltic states. Um, so I mean you could say that well this is just like it's really just politics. Like this is just the European Council acting as a political actor in international affairs without any reference really to um, to legal and constitutional questions. Um, but even then, um, just in terms of output legitimacy, it's still not working in that it's not, it's, uh, well, it's, I mean, it did basically stop the flow of refugees um, and kind of let the issue go away. It stopped the problem issue being a problem for European governments for a time. But uh, how stable is that in the long run, especially with, with uh, more refugees coming from Afghanistan? Thank you for this great question. Uh, as I'm, I'm on my second year, I'm doing the first question of my research at the moment, which is un under the new intergovernmentalism. And I can say that the EU, EU common place, EU common asylum policy is broke out by just by the Syrian refugee crisis and uh, the happenings and just before the COVID shows that the EU needs Turkey to keep the Syrian refugees outside of their borders and uh, yeah and also it shows that uh, Turkey is also using refugees just for political bargainings and uh, which is which is hard to see this situation stable in the short term. And also I can say that the in the in the European Parliament questions were uh, asked about the legal nature of the statement. And apparently EU's EU procedure for negotiating and concluding the deals with third countries uh, based on the TFEU hasn't been followed uh, for the EU-Turkey statement and the Council may only conclude the deal with a third country uh, after obtaining the consent of European Parliament. And uh, and also the cases, case on the from the general course orders illustrates that how the how the checks and balance built into the system can be completely bypassed when the EU institutions collude with the uh, member states to act outside of the treaty, treaty frame, framework. And uh, in the in the long term, I uh, it's it's too early to say that to find this to answer this question. How I, uh, however, I can say that uh, in the long term, the EU and Turkey uh, needs to work in in a cooperation, especially for the Afghan refugee influx. In as, may, as you may uh, you you may know about the. Turkey is also not willing to accept the refugees, to, Afghan refugees, to Turkey. They start to they start to build the wall in the eastern border of Turkey, and it also shows that they are they have the similar interests. Uh, they have the similar uh, opinion to Afghan refugee against the Afghan refugees. Yes, that's all. Uh, that's it. <laughs> I hope I can give your answer, give your question answer. <laughs> Thank you. That's an excellent answer. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. Andre Woolgar is the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.